It's time for the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is the voice of the working class, Rick Smith. And welcome, brothers, sisters, working class heroes. This is the Rick Smith Show. Thanks so much for being here today on the big program. Lots to get to, lots to talk about. Monday, a historic event happened in Washington, D.C. A a partnership, if you will, between Microsoft and the AFL-CIO was announced. A historic, the headline read, Labor Tech Partnership announced. And the CEO, the, the, the president of, of Microsoft, uh, Brad Smith, no relations, uh, said people have a fundamental right to organize. And you go, hold on. Um, are you not the, the president, the, the chief cook and bottle washer over there at Microsoft? That's not been the position of many presidents of big corporations for a very long time. Uh, again, my my concern level goes up when you when you start talking about this this kind of historic partnership. I'm I'm generally a little, little bit leery, uh, and what they have struck on is this idea that uh, the workers in uh, at Microsoft, the the gaming division, the AI division, that they'll have the right to exercise their rights to join and form a union if they so choose. And Microsoft has said that they're not going to coerce, harass, intimidate, fire, do do any of the stuff that corporate America usually does. And and evidently, uh, the partnership is in how AI is going to be used in, 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 in the work world. A partnership, if you will, to use AI to make workers' lives easier, not replace them. And if that if that's what comes out of this, I'm 100% behind it. I think that would be a great thing. Uh, now, Liz Schuler, the, the head of the AFL-CIO, uh, said of Microsoft that their positioning is, if workers want to organize, we shouldn't stand in their way. She said every company basically fights us when workers want to organize. And that's the that's the reality, which also on Monday, I find interesting that Sean Fain, the head of the UAW, the United Auto Workers, uh, their union filed unfair labor practices against Honda in Indiana, against Hyundai in Alabama and Volkswagen in Tennessee uh, for alleged illegal union-busting activities. So while there was organizing campaigns going on in those locations, the companies did what they normally do. They harass, they intimidate, they, they do all of that stuff because the laws are pathetically weak. Now, I find it interesting uh, that Fain is, is, is going in this direction, and it's about damn time, uh, especially because they have launched what is being considered an incredibly unprecedented organizing campaign at 13 automakers uh, these 13 automakers have about 150,000 employees if they were to organize all 13 of these 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 automakers it would it would double their current membership which I keep saying we need to be doing we need to have industries that are unionized not just one pocket here one pocket there because as I said the other day when union density goes down, Working conditions, standard of living, wages, benefits, all of that stuff goes down with it. So by organizing the entire industry and taking the idea that I can I can cheat my workers out of wages, taking that out of the equation, that's going to be beneficial for everybody. When it's about quality, when it's about service, when it's about who, who builds the best mousetrap, that for consumers is the best thing. Not, hey... Who was willing to 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 abuse and and use their workers um, most judiciously? Uh, now I, I got to tell you, I I think Fain is is the guy who's out of all the the labor folks that I know, he's he's on the right path here. Uh, he said during a Facebook Live presentation that uh, we're ready to demand our fair share of the pie, and he went on to say, so now the companies are bringing out the stick. Uh, like corporations everywhere, no matter what they tell you, these companies are more than willing to break the law if it means protecting their bottom line from the workers. They'll lie, he said, they'll cheat, they'll steal, they'll intimidate, they'll surveil people, and they'll coerce 
And then out of the other side of their mouth, they'll tell you, we're a family. And every one of us have heard this story. Uh, I'll tell you, in looking at some of the developments going on, I think the new year will be a good one if if labor militancy continues, if more lead, labor leaders across this country start looking to the likes of Sean Fain and saying, hey, how do we mobilize, educate, and, and activate our membership to go into the streets? Because, look, this it's my belief this agreement with Microsoft doesn't happen without the militancy of workers everywhere. Microsoft doesn't want to soil its bad name with a with a, a worse fight. Uh, so I see this as one of those moments of going, okay, you know, we'll 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 acquiesce. We'll give you something. The question is, is what it what's it going to be? For me, that that is yet to be seen, and that's the question. And when we come back, uh, Dave Jameson's going to be here. Dave's a labor reporter over at Huffington Post. Maybe he's got some thoughts on what this what this historic agreement is, what it could look like, what it could mean. Also, going to get some thoughts from him on, well, the stories that were big in the labor world this year. Quick break. Right back with Dave Jamison from Huffington Post. Thanks for tuning in to The Rick Smith Show. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Rick Smith Show. Like us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can find all that and much more at thericksmithshow.com. Welcome back to The Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So the big story today, uh, the AFL-CIO and Microsoft have announced that they have they formed a partnership uh, so that they can create what they're saying is an open dialogue to discuss how AI must anticipate the needs of workers. They've also signed... Uh, what they're calling a historic ne- uh, neutrality agreement with CWA uh, so that the video game workers who are organizing can choose to have a union or not without harassment, without intimidation. Uh, this is kind of a big deal, kind of a kind of a big thing. And here to share some thoughts on maybe just how big this is and maybe you know, give us some thoughts on what the year looked like in the labor movement. I've asked Dave Jamison to come talk with us. Dave's a labor reporter over at Huffington Post. You can check out his work at HuffPost.com. Dave, thanks for taking time for us. Hey, Rick. Good to be here. So what do you make of this uh, this story here? Uh, the AFL and Microsoft uh, marrying up a little bit. New partnership uh, for open dialogue on AI and, well, the, the, uh, the union neutrality agreement. What do you make of that? Yeah, it's well, you know, uh, I'm always a little cautious on on these sorts of alliances. Certainly, at first, till we till we see how things play out. Um, you know, the, the AFL-CIO is calling it historic, and I, I, look, uh, dialogue is good. I, I think uh, neutrality, so, so workers can can not feel coerced when they're making choices on union representation. That that's always nice. Uh, I, I think people always justifiably kind of wonder. Uh, you know uh, about this sort of sort of partnership when when you know organized labor is sort of openly embracing uh, a, a business like Microsoft and I think people reasonably wonder is this is this uh, you know does this help promote Microsoft and and, and things of that nature I'll, you know I'm not going to pass judgment on it on it yet we'll kind of see see where where it goes and whether you know whether this discussion they have on on AI is 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 truly helpful. Yeah, I mean there's there's a lot here, and the devil always in the details. But I'll tell you one of the things that I've been thinking, and because we've seen a number of these neutrality agreement agreements popping up, is it's telling me that the organizing that's going on, the activity, the militancy that seems to be out there, and look this this year has been at least in my lifetime one of the, the the most active labor years that I can recall. Uh, so there's part of me that goes, corporate America is a little concerned that this could continue to grow and that this might be a way to go, hey, hey, whoa, 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 we'll, 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 whatever you want, we'll, we'll tap things down, just just go back to normal, don't don't raise, don't, don't go marching in the streets, don't do that stuff. Uh, this just seems to me that kind of, you know, tapping down some of the emotion. Yeah, I think uh, sort of a, if you want to take a charitable view on 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 Microsoft here, it's that they, they see what's what's going on in the in the broader economy. They've seen a lot of this this organizing that's happened, 
And they see that the, the general position of corporate America, certainly where, where new unions are coming, is to fight them uh, you know, as hard as you can when you look at, at Starbucks or Amazon. And maybe they just want to take a different tack. Maybe they think, uh, you know, maybe they think there's 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 no there's no real good in fighting this if this is what our employees want. So so maybe maybe we'll 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 go neutral and maybe we'll get some nice press out of it, which is which is nice. Uh, not not a bad position to take if that's what their read is on things. No, no, it's, and it's it's what they're getting. Uh, but like I said, this has been in my lifetime and I maybe yours as well. Uh, since we're you know around the same age ish, um, uh, this has been an incredible year for labor activism. Uh, the militancy level has ramped up. We're seeing you know lots of victories and lots of activity. Uh, any any thoughts on on what this year has meant? What it could mean going forward? Any thoughts? Yeah, I think I, I think this past year is sort of an extension of twenty twenty. Uh, two, excuse me, in the the, uh, the sort of the big organizing breakthroughs we saw, especially at non-union places, you know, Amazon, Starbucks, REI, all of that. Uh, what we saw this year was, I think, you know, legacy unions making huge gains in big contract fights and strikes. You know, obviously the the UAW being the most recent. You know, Teamsters had a, had uh, the big UPS contract. You know significant raises in these contracts and of course the the hollywood strikes that that you know workers by and large felt re really delivered with solid contracts but i kind of see like sort of two storylines going on right now one where you see um unions doing extremely well in um in these battles in industries where they've been for decades when we talk about you know the uaw and the teamsters at ups Whereas the new unions are are really in in a dogfight right, right now. I mean, they they have won these elections, and I think that excited a lot of people. But I think people are seeing now that that's that's actually kind of the start of the fight. Uh, we've seen in these contract fights so much stalling going on uh, uh, on the company's part, a lot of um, uh, litigation going on, tremendous charges of illegal union busting. Sorry, we got a, a fire somewhere here going on. Um, no, it's what so, I said, Dave, you know, the, the, when you know, I had met some, some Starbucks workers and they were like, we've got a union. I go, well, <laughs> yeah, but you don't have a contract. And that's the part that, that eventually you got to get to, cause that's the enforcement. That's the mechanism you need. So yeah, great. We won some fights. Uh, but the big fight is getting that first contract, which is why I keep coming back to while you know, we have all of these great this stuff going on, we do need major comprehensive labor law reform. Uh, to, to ensure that workers have the option of of you know being able to get that first contract. Yeah, I, I think what we what we're watching is sort of a reminder that that while there's been this kind of burst of of energy in the labor movement, kind of the, the underpinnings of the whole game haven't changed. Uh, certainly haven't changed yet when we talk about um, uh, legally and 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 politically. I mean, the politics have shifted, but there there certainly hasn't been. Um, you know the momentous changes that I, that I think would need to happen to see like union density really turn around in, in this country. So even though there's I think a lot of optimism right now, justifiably for unions, I'm I'm, I'm uh, really cautious in 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 ever saying that that we're we're witnessing some sort of massive turnaround right now. Yeah, I mean what's interesting to me, and again I keep coming back to this, the narrative that's out there. Uh, and I think it was Virginia Fox who, you know, not too long ago, so, you know, none of these people want to work. You know, none of these people want to work that it was said, I think it was at a, at a hearing about talk, people talking about overtime, which again, very weird. But it's this narrative that you get from the right that, you know, you know union people are lazy and, and this stuff has permeated uh, the mindset of some. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, again, I, I look at the political divide that we're in uh, do you have any hope the coming year, since it's a major election year, uh, that this issue is somewhere near the top of the important list? I yeah, I think so. You know, one thing you know you you look at is is just the 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 popularity of collective bargaining right now. I mean, we've all see, seen the polls. Um, you know, unions being at uh, really a, at a fifty-year, sixty-year high in terms of the the general public's approval uh, you know 
how that really shifts things in in the politics of the moment, I don't know. I, you know, I just I, re I read a piece over the weekend, uh, you know, with Nikki Haley rising in the in the GOP uh, presidential polls of, of uh, really just how how viciously anti-union she she was in South Carolina. I mean, literally saying we don't want jobs coming down here if they're going to be union jobs. We don't yeah. want to taint the water. No, and, I used to play a clip all the time of her. Uh, she was talking to Walmart, uh, the Walmart shareholders meeting, and says so she wears pointy toes, uh, to pointy-toed shoes because she knows where to kick unions yeah. uh, when they want to come to South Carolina. She kicks them where it hurts, she said, with her pointy toes. And you go, look, you, so basically what you're saying is uh, you're going to continue to have the lowest paid, uh, most abused workforce in the country. Yeah, and, and so I, I sort of wonder... Um, she's still holding to that line in the primary. Have have things shifted on the right where you where you can't do that? Well, I get not in a primary, certainly not yet. But then you look at uh, you know, uh, Josh Hawley in Missouri and you know JD Vance in Ohio. They went to a UAW picket line. I mean, you got to look at how they vote, right? They probably get an F on the AFL CIO scorecard or whatever. Um, but there's at least some lip service there and a certain subset of the of the Republican Party that's that's acting that it's concerned about corporate America's power. So there there may be a shift in that sense. Let me ask you about that, because, you know, I've said for a very long time, if Republicans were to turn, uh, were to make that pivot and not be anti-union, uh, not push the the whole no rights at work agenda, uh, not destroy unemployment, not destroy. And I know this is I know this is one of those things that go, well, that's never going to happen. But if they were able to pull off this pivot, um, do you see a lot of the labor movement you know, getting behind them? Do you see that happening potentially? Well, I mean, a lot of the labor movement in the sense that we talk about union members are already behind them. Uh, you know, I mean, you know that there's plenty of uh, plenty of, of, of uh, Republican members who Republican voters who are actually uh, uh, proud union members. Um, you know, what what we haven't seen, I, I think we've seen like a bit of a, a rhetorical change, but you got to look at, at, at how Republicans vote and 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 what they ultimately do. And I, it's a hard, it's hard right now to see them, you know, breaking away from, uh, you know, corporate America's positions when it, when it, where it comes to collective bargaining, pretty much when you talk about any kind of legislation or policy, I, I just, it's, it's very difficult to yeah. see. No, I'm point. with you. You know, I say all the time, Republicans hate working people. Look at what they do, not what they say. Uh, but you know, you keep hearing the Josh Hollies of the world. I know he just signed on to a letter for the Teamsters to, to help revive yellow freight. Uh, I know uh, JD Vance, like you said, been at a picket line along with Holly. Uh, Marco Rubio attempts to try and wade into those waters a little bit where he can. So it seems like they're, 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 they're they're testing it, uh, but you know the, the reality is, as you point out, their their voting record not there. Uh, but I think they also they also choose which uh, you know which unions, which industries uh, they're going to take those positions. And yeah. I think when you talk about trucking or or or, the, or or auto factories, very different from from whatever union positions they're going to have when we talk about you know home care workers and you know pretty 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 much anything in the service sector. Uh, you're spot on, right? Uh, so let me ask you: This year, again, as as we said a moment ago, has been you know just just a, a big year for labor. Uh, what stories pop out in your mind uh, for the past year uh, as the big ones? Well, I think um, uh, the the big ones are obviously the strikes, uh, and uh, for all the like caution and cold water I throw on 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 stuff, I think it's undeniable that that we we saw remarkable strike activity this year. That's that's proven in the numbers. I mean, more more people on strike than in years. Uh, you have to go back to um, uh, the red state teacher revolt to to see like sort of comparable numbers. And that was a different animal, right? That was concentrated in education. And it was public sector. This we're seeing. This is private sector, you know, activism. And I think so. So it's a it's a a story for a year. But it's also I think there's almost like a generational story of. I think when it came to UPS and and the Teamsters and and even Hollywood to a certain degree with those big strikes, there was this sense of years of of givebacks, um, years of not getting what we what we said we wanted, uh, whether we went on strike or came on the brink of a strike, you know. And this time this time we're going to get it. And I think that was that was really the sensibility you saw in in, in through all these fights.
Yeah, as, as good as the UPS, as good as the UPS contract was, and the the UAW contract, as good as they were, I still got people, you know, sending me emails going, "We should have, we should have either struck or stayed longer to get more." That there was that sense there. So it seems like that. Well, this isn't going to solve that. Uh, next contract will be just as interesting. Yeah, I think whenever people are like. Uh... You know, you look back at people who, who said Sean Fain was was asking for the world and this was crazy and these demands were outrageous. Well, obviously they weren't outrageous to, to GM workers because, uh, you know, damn near half of them, uh, you know, voted voted it down. So, you know, in a sense, the, Sean Fain and the and 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 the the bargaining team were really just delivered kind of just enough, you know, to satisfy part of that may have been expectation setting, you know, yeah. uh, people were, were really fired up on the picket line and they had, what was unique was that they made very clear public demands, which obviously we, we do not often see. And I think that may have impact, uh, you know, what, what, what people expected to get, but, you know, I think what, what the way he was talking and, and the positions they took were really, it was a reflection of where membership was at. Uh, no, we we walked on the picket line in Toledo, and in uh, the center line, Michigan, and in Wayne, Michigan, uh, we 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 spent the day with with workers in each of those places, and everybody on those picket lines, they knew why they were there. And you, like I, have walked on picket lines for years. It's not hard to find someone who's like, well, I don't really know what's going on. I didn't find one of those people on on that UAW picket line who didn't know why they were out there. No, and I, you know, talk, I talked to, I was in Toledo as well and, and, uh, end up in Detroit and in Toledo, I, you know, you, I talked to people who've been there forever and, uh, uh, I talked to someone who'd been a temp for literally weeks, you know, but she was all, all schooled up on it and kind of understood the whole dynamic and had the long view of history because her, her, uh, you know, her uncles and aunts had worked in the, in the plant, in the same plant, you know, and it was just, it was not the same Jeep job that it used to be. So I, it was, it was kind of it was kind of remarkable to see how how everyone had this sort of long-term generational view on 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 the fight that they were undertaking. Yeah, for me, one of the big things that came out of the UAW contract fight is the 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 talk, the beginning of a talk of a 32-hour work week, uh, by putting that on the table, beginning that that conversation a little bit. And look, you know, I didn't find anyone on the picket line who believed that they were getting a 32-hour work week because it was one of those things I I brought up to everyone. Uh, but I kept saying, you know, this is the how this is how we begin getting to that place. Uh, and, you know, I hearken back to, you know, learning about the fight for the eight hour day. And, you know, it was heresy. You know, the workday back then was, you know, sun up to sun down six days a week, uh, not eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for whatever the heck you want to do. It was you work till you die. Uh, so by beginning this conversation for a 32-hour work week, I think kind of an important thing because we're seeing some companies, you know, moving in that direction already. Yeah, and, uh, you know, you can sort of look back at the the $15 minimum wage. It's different because we're talking about a a wage rate and there's inflation and things change over time. But it, was, it went from very, very quickly from outrageous to uh, very realistic and then very quickly the de facto position of the Democratic Party, right? Yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, once once you sort of normalize something like talking about a 32 hour work week, it can move pretty quickly into sort of the, the mainstream of ideas. Yeah. It's interesting how that fight for 15 and a union just became fight for 15. That's right. Yes. Well, 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 it actually started out as uh, um, it was fight for 15 sort of and then like with a whisper and a union, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the coming year, uh, last question I've got for you. What are we expecting for the new year? Do you do you see this wave continuing? Uh, what 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 kind of uh, what kind of look into your crystal ball? What do you see? Yeah, I think I think things will continue a bit like this for a bit. I, you know, one reason being this is still like a, a really strong economy. You know, we're at jobs, unemployment is super low. I think like the leverage is is still there, you know, it's still, it's, it's hard to find, find scabs right now. If you, you know, if your workers go on strike, it's not easy. And it's, uh, you know, I think workers are still to a certain degree hold, holding a lot of cards, whether they want to organize or, you know, they're, whether they're pushing for raises or what things are, are, are cooling a bit, but, you know, we might have that soft landing that, that, yeah. you know, everyone, everyone hoped we had, I, I you know, whether all of this leads to like long-term systemic changes, that's like, that's a whole other question, you know? 
we will see what the new year brings us. But, Dave, I appreciate you taking some time for us. I wish you the best in the holidays, and I look forward to talking to you again in the new year. Rick, thanks for having me. Have have a great, great holiday and new year. You as well, our good friend Dave Jamison. Make sure you check out the work that he does over at Huffington Post. HuffPost.com, the website, if you want to take a look at that. Going to take a quick break. Right back. Stick around. You listen to The Rick Smith Show. Thanks for tuning in to The Rick Smith Show. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Rick Smith Show. Like us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can find all that and much more at thericksmithshow.com. Welcome back to The Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So it's going to be an interesting 2024 and... Look, you, you look at the labor militancy that's been going on in this country, the fact that workers have said, hey, enough already. We demand better wages, hours, conditions, and some of the, the really big organizing that's been going on. And the, the sad thing is, is, you know, as as Dave and I were discussing, you know, it's one thing to, to win the election, to get union recognition, to get, you know, to, to be recognized by the NLRB. It's a whole nother thing to get that first contract. That first contract is for, for too many people way too elusive. And this is why we do need comprehensive labor law reform to where if it is the worker's choice to join and form a union, this idea of bargaining in good faith, there has to be some some teeth in that dog. There has to be some, some repercussions for companies who have shown us time and time and time again, look at Starbucks, that they're just never going to, going to sit down and negotiate in good faith. It's never going to happen. Uh, they are never going to allow that first contract. And this is where when, you know, when Bush, during the Bush years, they came out with the Employee Free Choice Act. This was one of the things in EFCA that I was supportive of, the idea of first contract arbitration to where both sides, you know, nobody wants a contract imposed on, the, on them. But knowing at the end of the road, there has to be something. Uh, this is kind of a big deal. And this is why I, I go back to. We most certainly need to have labor law reform to ensure that when these workers say, hey, we want to join and form a union, that they that they get a contract, that their their effort, their struggle, their sacrifice, all of that stuff is recognized. Seems pretty simple to me. Uh, anyway, if you're watching on the, our TV program, I appreciate you tuning in. Miss any of the program, make sure you get the podcast wherever you get podcasts. Also, freespeechtv.com. Uh, freespeech.org if you miss any portion also for our radio audience I'll take a quick break right back after these messages stick around you're listening to the rick smith show we're working people come to talk i'm rick smith and this is labor history in two on this day in labor history the year was 1947 that was the day that the United Mine Workers leader, John L. Lewis, wrote the AFL stating, We disaffiliate. Lewis had had a stormy history with the American Federation of Labor. He was central to the 1935 split that soon led to the founding of the Congress of Industrial Organizations. By 1942, he led the United Mine Workers out of the CIO. Reasons included disagreements over labor's relationship to President Roosevelt and U.S. entry into World War II and the running of the CIO itself. For a brief time, the United Mine Workers reaffiliated with the AFL. But by the fall of 1947, Lewis found himself in fundamental disagreement with the Federation over its response to the recently passed Taft-Hartley Act. At the October AFL convention, the discussion centered on the signing of anti-communist affidavits as required by Taft-Hartley. Lewis was virtually alone in his refusal to comply with the act. He noted that the act would have been stillborn if labor leaders had stood tall and refused to sign the affidavits. Further, he said, quote, 
This act is a trap, a pitfall for organizations of labor. This act was passed to oppress labor, to make difficult its current enterprises for collective bargaining, to make more difficult the securing of new members for this labor movement, without which our movement will become so possessed of inertia that there is no action and growth. In a labor movement where there is no growth, there is no security for its existence because deterioration sets in and unions, like men, retrograde. Despite the split, the United Mine Workers would remain a powerful, independent union for more than 40 years. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. Welcome back to The Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. Well, just in time for the holidays, John Oliver had uh, I'm a, did an incredible job on his latest show talking about trains and greed. Uh, he talked about deregulation and, and, and greed. Uh, he talked about the lack of safety on those trains and, of course, of course, greed. Also talked about East Palestine and, and of course, corporate greed. And it got me thinking, you know, what's going on on the ground in East Palestine uh, since the corporate media has kind of forgotten about it. I guess we moved on. There are other big stories. Uh, things aren't burning in the uh, in in the night glow. That's why I've asked Chris Albright to come talk with us. Chris is an East Palestine resident and one of the folks having to deal with the aftermath of, well, what has been our corporate greed. Uh, Chris, thanks for taking time for us. Oh, I'm glad to be here, man. Glad to be on. So... Right now, what's going on? What what what's happening on the ground in East Palestine? What are, what are you seeing? Uh, how are people holding up since the the cameras have gone away? Since the coverage has gone away, what's going on? Well, they're still doing a lot of cleanup. Getting through town looks like some kind of municipal waste type building. Um, there's a whole section of our town which is pretty much barricaded off. You drive through it, um, which they actually just opened up that road not too long ago at all. Um, the speed limit is 15 miles an hour. You got construction vehicles everywhere. Um, it, it just it looks like a war zone is what it looks like right now. And what's your experience, Ben? How are, how have you been holding up your family? How how are the folks in your world hanging up? Um, we've definitely gone through quite quite a lot. Um, we were living in a hotel for over four months when this first happened um, due to medical issues. Um, I was a very very healthy middle-aged man working a very physical job and developed congestive heart failure which turned into severe heart failure which um all the specialists i've seen have they've not been able to say that it has been caused by the trained aroma but they definitely have not been able to say it hasn't been caused by the trained aroma my one specialist um was quoted in the new york times even as saying that he would be very hard pressed to say that this wasn't because of the trained aroma i have been fine before that my my one daughter's been getting nosebleeds um for you know whenever we first got back um every time she stepped in the door um my youngest daughter was getting rashes um every time she was in the house um my wife's blood pressure is went through the roof i mean it actually got like stroke level um on on her blood pressure so we've definitely been dealing with quite a lot i can't imagine and and look you know as I said, you know, the sad reality is, is once the flames went away, once the, the news media went away, people have forgotten. Uh, do you think what's happening, the cleanup, the, the effort to help folks like you, uh, has it been enough? Is is there is there more happening? Uh, what's what's going on? Well, I definitely don't think it's been enough at all. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, the cleanup efforts are still ongoing. Um, some of the things that they've done that I don't know if a lot of the media knows about is they're trying to sell their contaminated water wastewater back to us because nobody will take it um norfolk southern is they decided to dump 25 million dollars into our our local park um which was really not needed um our park was fine we have a, a very nice park to be at you know to be honest with you a nice pool a lot of communities come to it they're dumping 25 million dollars into that and nothing towards the residents um, there's plenty of empty houses around here right now due to people moving away. Um, and with that being said too, Norfolk did put up a relocation thing for quite a, for some people to move them away for a little bit, but, um, just in time for right after the holidays, they are now ending that as of February 9th, there will be, they, they are not paying for any of that anymore either. 
So they're putting a little window dressing up by dressing up the park uh, and basically going, oh, well, our job's done, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Um, they they haven't done really a whole lot to, to really help, you know, the residents out very much. So no, as I just like the, you said, window dressing is great. No, the, the, the local economy really took a major hit. Uh, is the local economy, is Main Street coming back? What What's the sense there? Because the last time I talked to someone, they said, look, you know, the jobs you know, kind of disappeared after this. You know, people left. Uh, is the local economy coming back? Uh, what, what, are you, what are you experiencing? Um, being a small town, there's not a whole, whole lot, but um, it, it's, it's, I think it's coming back a little bit, but I think that's just a lot of that would honestly be due to small towns, small roots, people coming back, want right. to help out their, their local businesses, want to help everybody out that we possibly can. There have been, you know, a number of businesses that have shut down and that are not going to come back. Um, that's just the reality of it. And here with the holidays coming up, a lot of people struggling, uh, especially this time of year. Um, if you had had the opportunity to tell uh, regulators, you know, Norfolk Southern, someone what needs to be done, what isn't being done right now, and what do you think needs to be done to make sure that the community's left whole, that folks like you are taking care of? Uh, what What's that pathway forward look like? Well, first of all, if I had a chance to talk to Norfolk Southern, one of the first things I would tell them would do would be to get their safety standards under control. Um, what happened here um, can happen again at any point in time, any other place in this country. Um, we all know we need the railroad. We need the railroad. You got to have this railroad. But the the lack of safety and you know um, brought on by greed, you know they Norfolk Southern has cut down their their job on you know their 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 people on how many people are working on their safety you know campaign and everything and, and what they're doing is it, it shouldn't be allowed it shouldn't be allowed to be carrying toxic chemicals through town having what happened here in our town and I mean we watched the the whole thing from our dining room window. You know, um, it, it's, it's catastrophic and it should never, ever happen again, ever happen again. That's got to be surreal. Uh, what, 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 let me ask you, what was that? What was that experience like when you look out your window and you see what, what most of us saw on TV as, as horrible? What did that look like? Uh, I'll give you I'll, I'll tell you about it kind of quickly in a way, but it was on a Friday night. Um, like I said, our one daughter is a cheerleader. They had a basketball game after the game. Um, we started hearing sirens and you know reports of a train accident. We thought, hopefully, nobody leaving the game got hurt. That was our first concern. Right. And then we started hearing other things about it. And my wife let our dog outside, and she could see the fire. And like I said, I started filming it just from right outside my dining room. We could see the whole thing. It was very, um, you know what? Actually, at the time, it wasn't that worrisome in a way. We just figured the train caught on fire. It happens. Big deal. Um, then the the cops came to the door and told us we had to evacuate um everybody within a one mile radius had to evacuate and with us you know we got two dogs a cat kids everything so i told my wife take the girls go away i'll stay here with the dogs for now and if it gets really bad i'll get out um sunday the cops came to the door again and said that if that i had to get out now if it gets bad that they're not going to come back so i had stayed here over the weekend and um, <clears throat> as soon as my wife came here to help me get the dogs and everything, she walked in and she was like, you don't smell that? I'm like, smell what? Yeah. I was nose blind to it. I didn't smell anything. So it was um, after that point there. And then the other bad thing with that was that was on Sunday. They, they, they did the burn of the uh, train cars on Monday. By Wednesday, they told us we can come back. Wow. Yeah. That's all. It's all fine now. We burned it all up. Exactly. Everything is great. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people have seen the the pictures of the death plume that was uh, right above our town. I mean, yeah. what they did, uh, you know, in, in two days, they said, yeah, go ahead, go back. And uh, now you've got a new park to show for it. Exactly. Everything is great. we got a park. So it's all good. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy stuff. So lastly, you know, what, what would you have, you know, our government regulators do? What, you know, what's the, what's that, is there something that we can do to help? 
I guess, you know, that's where my mind is because I'm, I'm a fixer. I want to fix things. I want to make sure, <laughs> hey, we never have this happen again, which is why we need regulation. But two, we got to take care of people who are harmed by this. We cannot continue to allow corporate America to, to, defend, to, to put on the backs of taxpayers and citizens the external costs of their, their lack of safety or their greed. So what, what, can, what can we do? What should we be doing in that world? Um, uh, as far as some of that there goes, I would definitely say you got to regulate what goes on to these trains at all times. You have to know, like when that burn happened, um, you know, again, small community, we're only 4,500 people here, 4,700 people. Um, the, the fire chief had no idea what was in those train cars and didn't know what he was, you know, how many were, were going to be ignited at that point in time. Why didn't he know that? Knowing what's on those train cars, knowing what's being hauled through your town, regulating what's being hauled through towns and things like that speed limits going through towns um all that stuff needs to be handled and, and, and treated differently because and i'm sure a lot of people saw that um that train was on fire miles before it got to our town um i can't say for sure on this i'm not a part of norfolk southern but i've heard that you know the engineer radioed somebody told them they told them don't worry about it, let's get it to the yard we'll take care of it there if that's true or not, I'm not 100% sure. But the fact that, you know, we need to start really regulating what's on these trains and what's going through people's towns um, yeah, really needs to be changed. I'm right there with you. Uh, Chris, I appreciate you taking time for us. I wish you the best in this holiday season uh, and the best with your health moving forward. Uh, and whatever we can do to help make that happen, I, I want to know, and I'm sure our listeners do as well. But Chris Albright, I appreciate you taking time for us. Uh, thank you for having me on here. I appreciate it. Uh, you know, I got to tell you, folks, this is this is one of those things that's just is angering and and frustrating. Uh, now, on Saturday, December 16th, the folks over at the Working People's Podcast, they're going to host a 12 hour live stream fundraiser for the families of East Palestine. Uh, as you, we just talked about the train derailment, uh, this community has been devastated and we're going to find out how you can help. Max Alvarez is the editor in chief over at the Real News Network. He's also host of the Working People podcast. Uh, the folks who are going to put on this this big event on December the 16th. Max, thanks for taking time for us. Hey, brother. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Love everything you guys do. It's an honor to be on with you. So on Saturday the 16th, you're going to put together a 12-hour live stream fundraiser to help the folks of East Palestine. We we just talked to Chris a second ago. Uh, you know, it's fallen out of the mainstream media's attention span. Uh, we're, we're not seeing stories coming out of East Palestine. We're not seeing, you know, any of this stuff ha- so the fact that you're going to highlight this for an entire, you know, 12 hours to get people to have an opportunity to fund a Christmas for these folks, I think is fabulous. Thanks so much, man. I really appreciate it and appreciate everyone out there for any help you all can provide. Um, if you heard from Chris, you already know everything you need to know here, right? I mean, these folks um, who did nothing wrong. Uh, I want to start there. They were just living their lives in East Palestine, Ohio, and the surrounding areas. Uh, and life was um, as it normally was up until February 3rd of this year, when a Norfolk Southern freight train, as we all know, carrying multiple cars filled with toxic vinyl chloride, uh, derailed in East Palestine. And then two days later, uh, the contents of those cars carrying vinyl chloride were released into basically a, a pit and set on fire, releasing a massive toxic death plume over the surrounding area. And in the 11 or 10 months since then, I mean, these people have had their lives turned upside down. I mean, I, I came to this story because like you, I'd been interviewing railroad workers during the high stakes contract fight last year and i i interviewed engineers dispatchers uh, uh uh conductors signal callers machinists and all manner of folks who who work on the railroads and all of them warned that something like east palestine was going to happen if the greedy railroad companies did not change their uh, uh wall street focused shareholder dividend maximizing practices that they've been implementing on the rails for years, cutting staff, cutting costs, cutting corners at every single turn. 
so that they can rake in more profits than they've ever made over recent years. And when you have a, a, a part of the supply chain that is this vital, that is this dangerous, that is carrying trains that are getting longer and heavier and piled with more toxic uh, substances or even substances that we don't even know that they're carrying and that are going through our backyards and and uh, these trains are stopped in the middle of our towns and our fire uh, engines and, and um, ambulances can't get to the destinations they need. We're all paying the price for the railroad's greed, but the people of East Palestine have paid it uh, 10 million times over with what they have been through this year. They have, as you mentioned, largely been abandoned by uh, the the politicians in Washington, let alone in their respective states in Pennsylvania and Ohio. Norfolk Southern has done its best to cover up, you know, any of its own culpability in this and try to just tell people that everything's fine, go back to normal, even as residents like Chris are suffering uh, major health effects. Um, people are getting nosebleeds in their own house. They're getting headaches in their own homes. They, they I've had uh, uh, residents on my show tell me over and over again, I don't know if the grass my kids are playing in is going to give them cancer in 20 years. I don't know if things are actually all right. We're just being told things are all right, even as we can feel the effects that something is not right. And so that that's all to say that um, even as the national media, the the politicians who are trying to make hay out of this in the immediate aftermath, um, and, and sadly, a lot of the public have basically moved on from this story. The nightmare that people in East Palestine are living has not left East right. Palestine. They are still there. Many of them can't like just uproot their lives and move, but they can't sell their homes because after a disaster like this, what's your property going to be worth, right? Um, folks have roots there. They have lives there. They have jobs there. Like they are being left in like a literal sacrifice zone and told to just fend for themselves. But amidst all of that, the, the people of East Palestine are still fighting for answers, fighting for accountability, fighting for their families, for their community. And we want to help them however we can. And that is why uh, on my podcast, Working People, this Saturday, December 16th, uh, we are going, my my podcast producer, Jules Taylor, and myself are going to be hosting the 12-hour live stream. I'll be sitting right here in the Real News Network studio in Baltimore. It is not a Real News production, but I'll be uh, live streaming for 12 hours here. We're going to be bringing on folks from town, uh, who, and they're going to be holding an in-person party at the same time. Um, with live music, food, and and folks can bring uh, you know more donations there if they like. Um, but we are really trying to use the occasion to just raise as much money as we can so that we can buy you know gift cards for folks in town and disperse as much money as we can to people so that they can actually, after everything that they've been through this year, not have to worry about the mounting costs and stress of the holidays. We want everyone in East Palestine to have the Christmas they deserve. We know that one fundraiser is not going to solve everything. It is it is a drop in the bucket compared to what these folks really need. But we want to do whatever we can to help them this holiday season and remind them that the country has not forgotten about them and that we have not forgotten about them. We will stand by their side for as long as it takes to get justice. And where do folks go to, to, to participate with this? Uh, where do we where, where do we tune in? So uh, you can tune in to the live stream fundraiser on the Working People YouTube channel. Um, you can also go to a fundraising portal that we have created in collaboration with residents in town and a local nonprofit at in East Palestine called The Way Station. And a huge thanks to The Way Station and to everyone who's who's pitching in to help here. Um, because it's it's kind of difficult, right? I mean, I've I've done fundraisers for unions on strike, and there it's a little easier. You you donate whatever you raise into the strike fund, right? This is a little different. We don't want to you know be gatekeepers here. We don't want to deny anyone the help that they need, uh, and we don't want to touch the money we right. raise. We just wanted to go straight to the way station, and we're basically signing up as many residents in town as we can. Uh, uh, very few questions asked, just what's your name, what's your zip code, how many kids you got at home, because um, we're going to use the number of kids at home to, to like, like $50 a gift card goes to, you know, per kid, sure. like we're going to try to like basically distribute it as equally as we can then. Um, but that's, that's the deal. So we're getting, if you're living in and around East Palestine right now, 
There uh, uh, is a sign-up sheet going around. Um, you can also reach out to us at the Working People Podcast if you haven't found it, um, where you can sign up to to be on the list to receive, you know, again, a, a portion of whatever we raise this Saturday. Um, the the sign-up ends at the end of the live stream at 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on December 6th. Uh, and by then, we'll basically say, okay, this many people signed up. We got this many kids to try to get funds to. We raise this much money, split that, you know, like across the board and have the Waystation um, buy the preferred gift cards that folks want, Amazon or Target. We don't care what they buy. We just want them to have a good Christmas. Yeah. And that's that's basically the idea here. So we're going to have folks from East Palestine on the stream. They're going to be sharing their stories, talking directly to folks watching and listening. We're going to be bringing on journalists, advocates, anyone who has been fighting to keep East Palestine in public eye, fighting to hold Norfolk Southern and our government accountable for what has been done to these people. Uh, we're also going to be trying to bring on, you know, friends uh, from around the labor uh, world. And so uh, folks listening might be interested to hear that our very own Rick Smith may be joining us on the stream, which would be amazing, uh, lending his powerful voice to this righteous cause. So we're going to have all kinds of great folks joining the stream it's going to be fun it's going to be informative um and it's going to be heartfelt so let's let let let's like yeah i know the world's in a really terrible state right now but but this is something we can do to help people in need right now it's not going to solve everything like i said but it will do something and it does matter so please if you're listening to this reach out to us watch the live stream on our uh youtube channel the working people podcast youtube channel this saturday if you're around East Palestine, you can go to the East Palestine Eagles Club uh, from noon to 10 p.m. on Saturday. That's where the in-person party will be. Let's do whatever we can to give these folks the Christmas that they deserve. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's an excellent cause. I say all the time, if you want to change the world, start by changing your little piece of it. And this could be a start of that. But, you know, here's the thing. I mean, and it's great. I think the work you're doing is fabulous uh, to make sure that kids have an opportunity to have a bright, happy Christmas. But wouldn't it be great to make sure that this doesn't happen again so that no no one has to go through this? So, you know, hopefully out of this comes a little more activism, a little bit more interest in, in regulating these railroads and holding people accountable. Because, you know, in talking with Chris Albright a moment ago, uh, it sounds like the railroad has done a nice job putting some window dressing out. They've dressed up the park a little bit. Uh, they've done a couple of things, niceties, I guess. Uh, there are people still struggling, people still suffering, and the and the cause still hasn't been solved because something called precision scheduled railroading is still ruling the day. Uh, because as you pointed out, it's about the greed, it's about you know squeezing that quarter till the eagle screams. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. Like I met Chris and his wife Jessica Albright. Uh, in fact, when we were invited out to Harvard of all places by. Professor John Hansen, I want to give a shout out to, to Professor Hansen and his incredible law students because they were hosting uh, uh, a, a like full day teach in on East Palestine. And they invited me out to do a live uh, interview with the Albrights for my show. Right. And so, you know, we, we were uh, doing this interview in front of an auditorium of people. And that is how I started the the recording. I said, the February 3rd derailment of the Norfolk Southern train in East Palestine, Ohio, is one of the most uh, uh, significant and devastating industrial accidents in our country's history. And it could literally happen again tomorrow because we have done nothing to substantively address the root causes that led to this disaster. And what do I mean by that? I mean, I mean everything that you and I have been screaming about to anyone who will listen over the past couple years, right? You cannot have uh, trains that, like I said, are this long, that are carrying this much dangerous material, um, that have two people crews on three mile long trains and the railroads want to get it down to one person on those trains. And it's not just the conductors and the engineers and the train staff that have been cut over the years. Since 2015 alone, all of the rail carriers, not just Norfolk Southern, but the major class one rail carriers have collectively 
cut 30% of their combined workforce. This is their practice is just saw down the workforce to the bone, pile more work onto fewer workers, run your workers into the ground, endanger communities like East Palestine, uh, 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 frustrate and and your your own clients, the shippers who have to use the railroads who are getting poor quality of service. But but all the while, everyone's mad except the executives and the shareholders. We're all paying the price for this corporate greed. And um, we saw a little bit of hope in the aftermath of East Palestine. Maybe there was going to be some bipartisan push for the Railroad Safety Act. Um, but that has largely died. It's largely been uh, picked apart and watered down by the railroad lobby. And as the public has continued to forget about East Palestine, the pressure on Washington has lessened. And so we don't even know if that legislative side to hold these companies to account, to regulate them even a little bit more is even going to happen. Um, but what we can all do is make sure that we don't forget that this is a problem. We don't let the railroad companies forget that we are watching them. I want to give a shout out to last week tonight and John Oliver for doing a segment this week on their HBO show, which has a massive reach on freight rail trains uh, in this country and everything that we're talking about here. So we need to keep this into public consciousness. Um, and we also need to be looking ahead you know, because uh, last year when the whole country woke up to the fact that we were nearing a potential railroad strike or a railroad lockout uh, and everyone was wondering, where did this come from? Well, by that point, we were actually three years into contract negotiations between the rail carriers and the rail, the, the 12 craft unions representing over 100,000 workers on the freight rail system. And so no one had been really paying attention to the things that workers had been fighting for at the bargaining table for three years. So we are actually now much closer to the next bargaining round than we were the last one. So I want to put this is the final thing I'll say, and then I promise I'll shut up, is that for everyone who cares about this, in 2020 is when the contracts on the railroad are up. The same contract that scab Joe Biden and both parties in Congress conspired to shove down rail workers' throats against their wishes this time last year. So that contract is going to be up for renegotiation in 2025. And so if we go into those supporting the rail unions saying like, these are issues that need to be addressed so that workers can uh, implement the kind of safety measures that need to be implemented to prevent catastrophes like East Palestine so that workers have enough staff so they can do their jobs properly without being exhausted, without uh, not w w and have the sick days that they need to take rest when they are physically unable to do their job, which they didn't have before. All those things are going to be back on the table in 2025. So we can start much farther ahead of the 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 uh, the ball, the eight ball here than we did in the last uh, uh, high stakes contract fight. Well, December 16th, uh, that is the day of the big fundraiser. The folks over at the Working People's Pod uh, are going to be hosting it with folks in East Palestine. Uh, you can check out their YouTube page. We'll get links out on social media. How you can how you can pay, participate, hopefully donate. I will most certainly be there, Max, if you need me. Uh, anything we can do to help, especially at this time of the year. But But good on you for this. Thank you, brother. Right back at you. Can't wait to see you on Saturday. Maximilian Alvarez. He is the editor-in-chief over at the Real News Network. Uh, make sure you check out their website, uh, therealnews.com. We'll get links out on social media. Again, December 16th. Mark it on your calendar. Uh, the Working People Podcast YouTube channel. Uh, that's where they're going to have the 12-hour the event. I will be participating. So by all means, tune in, donate. Uh, be part of the solution. Thanks so much for tuning in. Miss any portion of the program? Make sure you grab the podcast. Never miss a second. Also, I want to hear your thoughts. Email me, rick at the ricksmithshow.com. You've been listening to The Rick Smith Show. Email rick, Email rick. at rick at the ricksmithshow.com. Until next time, this has been The Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two.
On this day in labor history, the year was 1945. That was the day President Truman appointed a fact-finding panel to investigate the General Motors strike. As many as 320,000 UAW GM workers had been on strike for nearly three weeks. They had suffered deep wage cuts, deteriorating working conditions, and endless contract violations during the war. The UAW workers now demanded a 30% wage increase. But President Truman and GM acted as if it was still wartime. Truman ordered a 30-day cooling-off period to be followed by compulsory arbitration. Just two days earlier, 10,000 strikers picketed GM, encircling their downtown headquarters for over an hour. The CIO held an emergency conference vowing to continue and spread the strike. CIO President Philip Murray took to the radio in defense of the strike. He noted that corporations had made millions in wartime profits, that wage cuts since VJ Day had been as high as 50% and denounced Congress for burdensome new tax laws. Murray added that Truman's proposed fact-finding act and other anti-labor laws served to, quote, weaken and ultimately to destroy labor union organizations. Bob Carter, chairman of the AC Spark Plug Strike Committee and chairman of the Greater Flint CIO Council, remarked, I am against arbitration and will oppose the setting up of fact-finding committees. Anyone acquainted with the labor history of this country knows that those committees are used by political stooges of the corporations to cheat workers out of their just demands. The strike ended in partial victory the following March, with strikers winning a 17.5% raise, just over half their original demand. But UAW members demonstrated their solidarity and their refusal to be cowed into going back to work on the government's terms. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc